0: Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I was going to turn my tape off, but I'll keep it running.
1: Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters.
0: And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability for the Los Angeles Times.
1: And today, Thursday, September 1st, 2022, we're talking about the big housing legislation that did or didn't advance this year as state lawmakers wrapped up another year at midnight on August 31st.
0: You must be tired from following all the late action.
1: Uh, lucky for me and <laughs> maybe you, the big ticket items that I was watching were resolved earlier this week, so I'm pretty well rested today. <laughs>
0: You know, I'm really glad to hear it. And so because we're very sharp today, let's get right to the maybe soon-to-be laws in California. Two, we'll be talking about our efforts to speed up home building in old strip malls and commercial corridors across the state. Those efforts, some studies say, could create more than one million new homes over time.
1: And to dig a little deeper into this issue later in the show, we have, as you might expect, the perfect guest. Who is it, Liam?
0: So joining us will be Peter Calthorpe. He's a San Francisco-based architect, urban designer, urban planner, and also a co-author of the study that I just mentioned. He was instrumental in the development of Assembly Bill 2011, one of the bills we'll be discussing in depth today.
1: But first, we have the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery.
0: It is the avocado of the fortnight.
1: Our look at the most wacky, funny, and dare I say, controversial story in California housing in recent weeks. Usually, I ask where we're going for the avocado, but I have a different question on this one, Liam. Okay. What time is it?
0: Um, is it uh, is it time to build?
1: Apparently not,
0: <laughs> or oh.
1: at least in a wealthy Silicon Valley enclave. Once again, our favorite stomping grounds for avocado. Mm. This time we're talking about Atherton, a community of about 7,000 people where the median home value is a whopping $8 million.
0: And one of the most famous residents of Atherton is Mark Andreessen, a legendary venture capitalist who is on the board of Facebook, Pinterest, and Twitter.
1: And Andreessen is quite known for his pro-building stance.
0: Yeah, so in April 2020, he published a brief essay that essentially laid all of America's problems in healthcare, education, and of course, housing, to a lack of building. The essay was titled very simply, just, it's time to build.
1: So give us a flavor, Liam.
0: Absolutely. Quote, we can't build nearly enough housing in our cities with surging economic potential, which results in crazily skyrocketing housing prices in places like San Francisco, making it nearly impossible for regular people to move in and take the jobs of the future.
1: All right. So building is the answer to remedy this problem. Got it.
0: Ah, except.
1: Mm. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> no.
0: Yes, well, yes. Um, So as our listeners are well aware, cities all across California are now updating their zoning plans to allow for a lot more housing to comply with new state laws. Atherton, no exception here. And last month, uh, Jerusalem Damas at The Atlantic got her hands on some email public comment from Andreessen and his wife about some of these zoning proposals in the town.
1: Surely this public comment will match the public rhetoric.
0: Email subject line. Immensely against multifamily development. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, on one of the rare occasions where it's better to actually read than talk, let me just note for the record that immensely against is written in all caps, and I'm trying to reflect that, and the subject line ends with an exclamation point.
1: Just one exclamation point.
0: Right, just one, just (laughs) one. So Andreessen goes on to say in the email, quote, I am writing this letter to communicate our immense objection to the creation of multifamily overlay zones in Atherton. Please immediately remove all multifamily overlay zoning projects from the housing element, which will be submitted to the state in July. They will massively decrease our home values, the quality of life of ourselves and our neighbors, and immensely increase the noise pollution and traffic.
1: I can tell from your reading, there were more than one phrases in all caps.
0: Yes, indeed. Thank you for recognizing my attempts and emphasis. And so I think to sum things up, we can fairly say that it is time to build, except in Atherton.
1: Well... Mr. Andreessen may or may not be delighted to learn that the focus of our episode today is on new legislation that may allow for lots more building across the state.
0: Yes, and Manuela, I know you were all over covering the fate of Assembly Bill 2011 and Senate Bill 6, both of which ended up passing and remained just a signature from Governor Gavin Newsom away from becoming the law. So why don't you set the scene for us? Uh, what are these bills supposed to do?
1: The idea here is that California has a lot of strip malls, office parks, and mall malls, many places that were struggling even before the pandemic. Mm. And now, in the midst of the pandemic, even more have entered the struggle zone.
0: Not the struggle zone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, with the surplus of empty offices and stores and the shortage of houses, lawmakers said, what if we turn those commercial strips into homes?
0: But things are never so simple in lawmaking as we know is. you know, just, do it. So how would these bills actually work?
1: So first, let's talk about AB 2011, authored by Assemblymember Buffy Wicks, a Democrat from Oakland and frequent Gimme Shelter guest. The bill attempts to fast-track housing development along these commercial strips where housing is now oftentimes prohibited.
0: So, and when you say fast-track, you mean? I mean, skip the
1: much-dreaded California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA,
0: Mm.
1: also a frequent subject of this podcast, Mm -hmm. that developers say often kills or stymies and makes more expensive housing projects. Here, if it checks all the boxes, the developer can just build it.
0: Ah, I know from my time covering the legislature that when there are phrases like checks all the boxes, that's actually code for some rules that developers have to follow to get the benefits you just talked about. So what are those?
1: So there are some height limits and restrictions on density, depending on where the project is located. But the two biggest boxes are affordability and labor standards. Generally speaking, developers would have to guarantee that at least 15% of the units in their project would be affordable to low-income residents. And they would have to pay construction workers who build the development union-level wages.
0: Okay, so we'll get to the politics of this in a minute, but I want to think it's important to start here about what this could actually do in terms of housing production. You know, I mean, there's various estimates out there, but Many of those estimates say that we're sort of millions of homes short of what we need in the state to accommodate all the residents who want to live here affordably. So what are people saying about how many homes actually could get built here?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked, Liam. And we'll get more into this in our interview. But a study from earlier this year by Urban Footprint that our interview subject was part of determined that about 100,000 acres of land would be newly available for development. Hmm and that at least 1.6 million new homes would be feasible to be built under current market conditions with almost all that growth concentrated in the Bay Area and Los Angeles. So feasible, not necessarily built.
0: I see. But feasible, like not just pie in the sky, but they argue there'd be some market conditions that would support it. Exactly. Okay, but let's move to the politics here for a moment. You know, as I recall from My time covering the legislature and your coverage in recent years, you know, labor politics has a lot to do with what, if any, housing bills get passed. You mentioned there were some labor requirements in this bill. So, what's going on with that?
1: So, longtime listeners may recall similar bills to streamline housing in past legislative years were killed on arrival, mm. like literally didn't even get out of policy committees, precisely because they didn't require that a portion of workers be unionized or graduates of apprenticeship programs. One of these victims was Assembly Member Richard Bloom's original bill to allow housing on commercially zoned land, mm-hmm. and Senator Scott Weiner's attempt to build housing on church. Parking lots, which was resurrected and again pulled this year. I see. This apprenticeship requirement is a huge priority for the State Building and Construction Trades Council, also known as the Trades, a sort of union of unions that represents more than 450,000 construction workers and holds a lot of sway over lawmakers.
0: Yeah. I mean, I recall, you know, somewhere, sometimes to the point where legislators were even scared to talk about the level of influence they hold in the Capitol.
1: Exactly. The problem is that the same provision was seen as a poison pill by developers, including affordable housing developers who said they wouldn't be able to find enough unionized workers to actually fulfill those requirements. Mm. So bills that did contain the labor provision last year were held by the Speaker of the Assembly, Anthony Rendon.
0: I see. So hopefully we've convinced our listeners That this labor dispute has been a big deal, but I didn't hear you talk about union worker apprenticeship guarantees when you were describing AB 2011. So, what's going on there?
1: The difference was that this year, the Carpenters Union, which isn't part of the trades, backed Wix's bill because they saw it as a way to pay construction workers higher wages, even if they weren't all unionized. Ah, okay. For weeks, those two labor camps tried to hash out language for AB 2011 that would make all the unions happy but they never reached a deal.
0: But you're telling me the bill passed though.
1: Yeah, and the vote wasn't even close. So the powerful building trades didn't get all that they wanted on Wick's
0: bill. Huh, okay, well that's something.
1: But they did get what they wanted somewhere else. There were essentially two bills. This one and a very similar bill, Senate Bill 6, from Senator Ana Caballero, Democrat from Salinas, that did have the union labor language and the backing from the trades. Uh It was actually revived this year after being caught in the crossfire I just described.
0: I see. So, give me the juicy gossip on what went down here.
1: So juicy. (laughs) Wix's office the week prior to the vote was confident she had the votes to cross the finish line on AB 2011. But leadership was worried about a face-off on the floor that would pit lawmakers against each other on two key priorities in California, unions and housing, or worse, the Assembly and the Senate on bills that each considered a key priority. So they struck a deal that would let both proposals through and leave it to developers to choose which one to use.
0: You know, so usually when no deal is struck, bills die. But here, no deal meant two bills pass. You know, that certainly sounds like an indication that Wix's bill did have the votes regardless Very quickly, Manuela, what does SB6 do? So
1: it also targets these commercial strips, and there's a lot of overlap between the areas both bills cover. SB6 does have the higher standards for unionized labor. In exchange, there aren't any affordability requirements, but more local zoning rules still continue to apply. In essence, the developers would get to choose which one they might use.
0: Right. Okay. So I really want to go back here to the practical impact of this legislation. You know, I remember covering a series of housing bills that were passed in 2017, and there was a ton of fanfare over what they might do to ease housing problems. And yet, of course, housing problems certainly haven't eased, and the stats don't show a surge in actual production. You know, last year, lots of people were excited about SB 9, Senate Bill 9, and the end of single-family home-only zoning in the state that that bill brought about. But we've really only seen a trickle of new production from that, too. Right. Yeah. So I know that lawmakers were throwing around words like uh, historic and monumental for these housing bills. And we did cite the, you know, rather large estimate earlier. But I guess I'm still like, really? That many homes?
1: Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Liam. This is a huge political feat. But when you ask developers especially those who build market-rate housing, they say it's not going to make that big a dent on production. Mm -hmm. Remember, the state's idea is to build 2.5 million units by 2030, which means doubling annual production, and no one thinks this is going to accomplish that. Mm. The prospects for using SB6 seem even more bleak than Mm -hmm. AB2011 because developers are so hostile to that union requirement.
0: I see. So it does seem like this would definitely help affordable housing developers who were the principal supporters of AB 2011 more since they are, in many cases, already paying the union level wages for their projects. I just have one other question for you before we get to the interview. Okay. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about how labor politics has sort of loomed over housing bills in recent years. So I'm curious, you know, if you think what happened this year is this sort of breakthrough that could see more housing bills advance in the future, or do you think it's more like a one-time deal?
1: I think everyone agrees there's gonna be a sequel.
0: Mm.
1: What you got here was a begrudging, sure we can coexist kind of answer, not a solid labor policy solution that can be copy pasted into future housing bills.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: But I think what's really fascinating is that we've had the same exact question percolating for years about whether the union labor requirement is feasible or not at the Capitol but we haven't actually tested it out in the real world. Now we'll finally get to see what developers choose to use. Mm. And both bills ask that local governments report data back to the state on whether they're getting used. Mm -hmm. However, that data is gonna take a couple years to really show results and new bills are going to have to be introduced next year. So we'll Mm. see what those all look like. Mm. Maybe we'll once again see affordability be sacrificed for union labor requirements, Which is sure to upset some folks.
0: Ah, okay. Very interesting stuff. So let's get to our interview with Peter.
1: We're here with Peter Calthorpe, a San Francisco-based architect, urban designer, and urban planner, and co-author of the study on the potential housing production in AB 2011 that we discussed earlier in this episode. Thank you for joining us, Peter.
2: Sure. Happy to.
1: So to get us started, tell us a little bit more about your involvement in this bill.
2: Well, I'm going to go back a ways. I first worked in Sacramento when Jerry Brown was governor first. Wow. We started talking in the 70s about sustainable development and sustainable communities. I've been working along those lines for a long time. And one of the most obvious things, although sustainable communities have many, many facets, is getting jobs and housing close together, getting more walkable environments becoming less auto-dependent. In 2010, I actually did a study for the state of California called Vision California 2050, which looked at the difference between infill and compact mixed-use communities as a future versus business as usual, which is just more subdivisions, and more freeways. And the numbers came back as you would expect, but maybe even more remarkable than you would think. You know, really massive environmental and social and economic consequences that Sprawl brings about, which is it's too expensive for many working people. It's too expensive for the environment. And now with climate change, it's too expensive for the planet. So the question has always been, well, what's the alternative to Sprawl? The alternative is infill. And everybody would always ask me, well, Peter, that's a nice idea, but where? Show us the locations. Well, As part of that study and then other studies, we developed a piece of software called Urban Footprint, which is actually where this study has been conducted, which allows us to get our arms around really big questions with really big databases. Mm -hmm. One day I walked in to Joe, my partner on that. I said, can you show me every piece of strip commercial property in the state of California? And a couple hours later, he had the answer. Oh man. When I saw that number, I realized that that was the infill solution, strip commercial. The idea that we would take the worst place in our communities and turn them into one of the best places. Mm -hmm. So rather than living in a subdivision and driving to a mall or a grocery store, single storey surrounded by parking, you might be able to have a simple back route that you could walk through to be on a street where there's all sorts of great stuff happening, cafes, restaurants, shops, and housing above for all the people that can't afford to live anywhere close to these. So that was 1.3 million units for the Bay Area. We did it for LA County, it was 1.6. This was all just kind of us saying, what would the impact be? So we all started talking about it and we got some articles published and it became an idea. And then uh, I gave a talk to some group in Sacramento, which happened to have staff for the housing committee. and. They got excited and took it to Wix, who then said, gee, I can add this to my affordable housing bill, which was just affordable housing on any commercial. So that's the quick summary of how we got to where we are, which is a really big idea. state of California is either sprawl or infill to very specific law that makes it happen. Mm-hmm.
0: So I want to ask about you know why you're talking about commercial areas for this. You know, last year, for instance, as I'm sure you're aware, there was a push to add you know more density in single-family home neighborhoods. Uh, there's been a number of bills over the years, in recent years, to add you know backyard units, ADUs, uh, that does the same thing. This is a very different approach from that. Why this approach?
2: Well, I, I think that that's nice, and I'm not going to be too critical of that. But it is mom and pop, kind of one at a time. It doesn't come up with a lot of units. Mm. In many cases, the only people that can afford to do it are people who already have a big lot and you know have a relationship with a bank and they can finance construction. Yeah. So low income communities aren't gonna get a lot of advantage unless they get bought out, which the law doesn't allow. So I saw that as an interesting start in the sense that it said it looks like the local jurisdictions have really dropped the ball. They are not capable or willing to go up against. NIMBYs that are saying, we've got ours, and the next generation or the next group of people are going to go have to find someplace else. And so we have COVID. People start working at home. They're not commuting, but they're also shopping online more and more. And more and more of that strip commercial becomes redundant, undervalued, unused even in many, many cases. We have this internal churning where you know the old strip is replaced by a big box, and the big box is now becoming marginalized by online shopping and you know amazon delivery, and all of a sudden you've got underutilized space, and it turns out massive quantities of it in exactly the right place for mixed use mixed income housing. The study showed that we have about one hundred thousand acres of this stuff across the state that the law, as written, would enable around 10 million units, but about 2 million of it is uh, market feasible. I.e., you could get financing and build a project and actually be renting to people who where there's a decent match to the income capacity that they have.
0: I mean, just push it a little bit. I mean, you really this 2 million units. I mean, you think we should expect to come out of this bill and and what kind of time period are you talking for? You know, numbers of that really significant scale.
2: Yeah, you're dealing with uh, 20, 30 years of inventory of capacity. And so at 20 years, that's 100000 a year. So this is a bill that addresses housing crisis at the scale that the housing crisis needs to be addressed. And there have been many studies that have shown that if we could just get a better balance between supply and demand, that will begin to rectify the cost. There's no doubt that cost goes up when scarcity comes along.
1: So give us a sense on the ground how people could see their communities change as a result of this. Where geographically could these units be located? What might they look like? And especially when we're talking about, right, higher income and lower income neighborhoods, where might we expect to see change first?
2: Well, it's pretty diverse. The law is written, interestingly. First of all, you have to be on a big arterial. You can only convert commercial land. You cannot go into a single-family neighborhood and buy a bunch of lots and build a multifamily, a four-story multifamily building. And you cannot displace what is now affordable multifamily, right? There's older apartment buildings everywhere. None of that is on the table. It's strictly commercial land. It's, it's parking lots and single-story building. There's no net loss of housing, which is a really good thing. Secondly, it does preserve existing neighborhoods and communities. So the location is underutilized, and it's not invasive. It doesn't really go into existing neighborhoods. And that's, I think, a positive.
1: So some advocacy organizations were concerned with this bill about the potential for gentrification in lower income neighborhoods. Even if people as you mentioned won't be directly displaced from any homes, they're worried that new condos next to older buildings could cause an eventual rising costs and displacement. How do you respond to those kind of arguments?
2: You know, I think that's a really complex and almost painful question. On the one hand, these communities don't want to be static. You know, the existing conditions, the level of services, the number of shops, the mix of opportunities is not great. So you don't want to freeze dry that into place. And at the same time, you don't want to come in and gentrify it. Well, first of all, gentrification is driven by the scarcity. In other words, when we don't have enough sites, places for housing, developers will creep into particularly those lower income communities that are close to job centers. But if you actually create this vast supply, it doesn't have to be disproportionate. It doesn't have to come in. And quite frankly, if it satisfies the needs for workforce housing, that kind of displaces the gentrification force itself. <laughs> so you know there are less people that are going to buy into the existing neighborhood if they have a nice choice right out on the boulevard nearby. And so the pressure comes off, partly because housing scarcity is reduced and partly because there are alternatives nearby, which then, by the way, kind of enhance the community, you know, make it a place with more services and more activity and more diversity. The idea of mixing incomes is really important, I think, on so many levels because it creates the kind of social equity, social capital that allows people to have a different life and not be so isolated, and not live in a low income enclave. Right,
0: so I wanna kind of wrap up here with one last thing, you know, you've talked about the need and the scale of the state's housing crisis and the need for building to match that. And you've talked about how, in your view, did this bill fits that need? Does that mean like we're done or like, what well, I mean, is it's all over the legislature can go home and say, you know, Housing crisis fixed? We've we passed AB 2011
2: or like what, what else in your view? I'm glad you ended on this question because I have the, the to-do list. Okay. Okay. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. We need to add the transit. We need to direct transportation dollars, DOT dollars and Cal dollars to remaking these streets and making them wonderful places to live, not just putting housing there. We need to figure out ways of making housing production cheaper. Uh-huh more cost-effective, because we're not going to get to these numbers. We're not going to get full potential at today's construction costs. Okay. It's just out of control. Yeah. So those are two really big to-dos, I think, that have to happen.
1: For number two, how do you get there? Like, How does the state specifically?
2: Well, one thing is embedded that I didn't mention in the law, the 2011, which is there are zero parking requirements. So if people can decide to live without cars, a lot of people can and will. And if the environment's right mm-hmm. and the transit's reasonable and the local walking radius gets you where you need to be, I mean, a lot of people do it in San Francisco, yep. then all of a sudden you've got an affordability element that's huge, <laughs> you know, a big reduction in cost. So I think that really changes the equation dramatically. As I said, I think mass producing housing has to mature in ways that make it more efficient to put homes on the ground.
0: Well, Peter, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us and explaining uh, your thoughts on
2: this bill and California's housing problem. Well, thanks for having me. And thanks for doing what you do, which is keep the dialogue going. Thank you. Bye, guys.
0: Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you may listen to us. Again, this is important so that new people can discover us and uh, listen to what we do. Our new Gimme Shelter producer is Mary Franklin Harvin. Mary Franklin, welcome to the team. And as always, our Star Wars editor is Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor, for all you do. My name is Liam, and I work for the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam.
1: And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tauillas M. Thank you all for listening.